The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze with Grace Goller. Dealing with cancer is by no means easy to handle, but our program aims to make it easier through knowledge. Whether you've been recently diagnosed, are going through treatment right now, or are a survivor, our program will have points that you should hear. And by sharing our stories together, we'll make it truly a life-changing experience that you don't have to go through alone. Now, here is your host, Grace Goller. Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Goller. My guest today, Dr. Francis Xia Chun, is quoted as saying, surgery is not just science. Surgery is an art. One can learn about science from courses, conferences and books. In art, one has to have talent first and then seek out a master who can bring that skill to perfection. As a skilled surgeon himself and as someone who has experienced cancer firsthand, he brings a powerful message of survivorship to his patients. As a seven-year-old child in Singapore, Dr. Xia Chun was diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoma and his life was saved by radical surgery, chemo and radiation, plus his family's strong faith. As a young boy also, his hobby was collecting stick insects and he became an entomologist who's now well published on the subject and internationally recognised for his contribution to the discovery and understanding of stick insects. And as well, he is certainly a world-famous colorectal surgeon. Dr. Xiaochun graduated from the National University of Singapore in 1981 and obtained his higher surgical qualifications in 1987. He subsequently subspecialized in colorectal surgery in 1989, where he worked with the world-class surgeons of St. Mark's Hospital in London. At that time, there were no specialized departments of colorectal surgery in Singapore. So, Dr. Siachun returned to Singapore after his training, intent in turning Singapore into a surgical colorectal powerhouse and in his first year he helped establish the first colorectal surgery department in Asia which offered patients the latest surgical techniques at the Singapore General Hospital. He's certainly gone from strength to strength since that time and he's now with Fortis Surgical Hospital in Singapore as well as at the colorectal centre. He's extremely well known and he travels extensively around the world lecturing about his surgical talents and he's received numerous prestigious awards also around the globe as well as numerous appointments to editorial boards of international prestigious journals. He's published 39 chapters in surgical textbooks and more than 261 original articles in peer-reviewed journals. 
Besides his busy professional life, Dr Xia Chun has also taken an interest in the development of colorectal surgery in the whole of Asia, and he's frequently invited to lecture and demonstrate surgical techniques all around the world in Asia. He's particularly consulted by surgeons with regards to handling difficult medical cases. So, we now welcome to the show Dr Francis Xia Chun from Singapore. Um, Francis, you're a recognised pioneer in laparoscopic colorectal surgery in the private sector. Can you tell us about the advantages of laparoscopic colorectal surgery and its evolution in medicine? Well, you know, laparoscopic surgery really took off over the last 10, 15 years. Before that, it was very basic. You know, people were just putting a scope in, having a look at organs, and it started really with the gynecologist. Um, but since the, it's since the last decade or so, you know, many other specialties have taken it on and developed it uh, such that now it's really in many specialties and many uh, for treatment many different diseases. It really is the standard of care. Um, not just because it's cosmetically better for 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 patients, but also because I think. Uh, the results are much better in some instances. If, uh, in some instances, of course, uh, just as good as open surgery. Now, from a patient's perspective, uh, obviously there's advantages in terms of the length of wound, the recovery then is dependent on the length of wound, the, you know, the grossness of the infection and other processes. From the surgeon's point of view, actually, um, we don't need a big wound to do big things mm. and when I was training my bosses used to say big surgeons big incision I think that's really <laughs> <laughs> not correct no. you know? so we, we can actually see a lot do do much better because there's magnification uh, and also do very fine things with laparoscopy equipment and of course uh, we are now going on beyond laparoscopy to other sorts of minimally invasive surgery Mm-hmm. Uh, the last time you were on Navigating the Cancer Maze as a guest, you touched on the Da Vinci system of robotic surgery. Can you talk more about the development of this system of surgery in Singapore and what medical conditions and cancer surgery in particular is it used for? Well, robotic surgery is uh, one facet of the whole development of minimally invasive surgery uh, internationally. Um, and uh, the robot, the Da Vinci robot, which we have been using here in our hospital uh, is just one of the systems available, the most uh, popular, no doubt, but the other systems have been developed around the world at the moment. Um, the <clears throat> many different specialties are using it. You know, to mention the most popular would be urologists, the um, gynecologists, and the colorectal surgeons. Uh, but other people, including head and neck surgeons, doing thyroids and, and other places, they are do, finding that it's advantageous them and for their patients. Uh, in our own setup, uh, we actually over the last two years have done uh, the biggest number of colon rectal resection with the Da Vinci robot here in Singapore, uh, partly because of the agreement and setup that we have with uh, Forte Surgical Hospital that we are able to offer patients uh, who, who, who need it but who cannot afford a, a better package for, for the experience and for the surgery. Um, the the Da Vinci system um, has to be understood um, or made uh, to simpler for patients to understand. A lot of patients, because you know they're familiar with computer games and uh, with computers and robots, they think that 
the robot goes in there and does operation on its own. Actually, it's not that sort of robot. <laughs> what it is, is a master and slave system. So the surgeon is still the master. And uh, he actually does the movement outside the patient's body on a uh, console, we call it a robot, the robot uh, or surgeon's console. And the movements are then replicated in the body, you know, um, via the patient console, uh, which has, um, you know, a couple of arms going to the patient's body. Mm -hmm. So whatever is done is still done by the surgeon, although via, via the robot. So it's that sort of system. Uh, so the robot cannot do independent action uh, and cannot take over the surgeon's role. Mm, I'm sure people are very pleased to know that. <laughs> <laughs> How does someone know if they could be a suitable candidate for da Vinci robotic surgery? Well, I think, first, first of all, uh, you need a surgeon to do the da Vinci surgery. Uh, you need a robot to be there. You need a hospital that has a system. So um, if one has those um, facilities and the, and the expertise available to do the da Vinci robot surgery, then I think a good chat with the surgeon is, is, is necessary. Um, I think the most important person in any sort of surgery besides the patient would be the surgeon because then he has to operate within his sphere of expertise. I mean, it's no point forcing a surgeon to do laparoscopy uh, on oneself if the surgeon is not comfortable because you know, he's going to mess it up for you. Mm. Now, if you want to do a robot and you can't really do it, then you might want to ask him, look, what's the best thing that you can do for me. Uh, if, if his expertise is not in that area and you want to do that, uh, he might still be able to advise you whether that's still suitable for you or not. If it's suitable, he might get you to see somebody who is doing it. But if he thinks it's not suitable and, and the reasons he gives are reasonable and sound, then perhaps you should just stick with what he has to offer you. Because mm -hmm. I think that's a more reasonable approach. You know? Yeah, cool. That makes sense. Um, international patients, obviously I'm one who's had uh, surgery here twice now in Singapore and this time at the Forte Surgical Hospital. Um, do you have a regular intake of international patients? Yes, in fact, we are a very small country here in Singapore. Uh, the whole um, local population base plus um, you know, foreigners living in this country is said to be about 4 million or so. Um, but we have in our surrounding countries a very large um, population base in those countries. For example, Indonesia has something like 200 million people, mm. you know, and there's India, you know, and there's, you know, Vietnam and China and Malaysia and so forth, and the Philippines and other countries around us. And we do actually still see a lot of foreigners coming here for medical treatment. Um, in fact, uh, in most private doctors' practices, uh, foreigners make up anything from 50 to 60 percent of our workload. So we mm -hmm. see a lot of international patients here and we are quite well geared uh, to meeting their needs insofar as perhaps, you know, this country, um, people's, uh, people are, well, we are well known for services as well as food. So, you know, people like to have their own food, which I think we have plenty of. Mm -hmm. And I think services uh, are rather good um, in many sectors and especially in medical we do have uh, interpreters and nowadays you know it's quite easy if I do get a patient who, who's speaking in a funny language you can almost always almost always be certain that you can get it on Google Translate you know and you can speak to them and they can speak to you so it's not so difficult as years ago when you had mm. to find a real interpreter or you know get through a dictionary to get through a few words 
Mm. So luckily you understand Australian. (laughs) (laughs) We can still go to a girl. (laughs) Um, Apart from the Da Vinci robotic surgery, what are the other latest innovations in colorectal treatment today? Have you got any things in the pipeline also? We actually have uh, started doing quite a few different things, which I think are um, a great step forward for patients. Um, let's just talk about, um, since I've come to Vinci, we talk about something that uh, concerns cancer surgery or, or major surgery first. Uh, we have been uh, doing and have, have started doing what we call a transabdominal, transanal resection of lower rectal cancers. Uh, in the past, whether it's robotic or open or, 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 or laparoscopic, we have approached these cancers through the abdomen. No doubt through small incisions or small puncture holes. Mm. Uh, but we still find in, especially the fat, uh, big male, uh, especially if they are very short, you know, where the pelvis is very, very narrow, it's quite difficult even with those small instruments to go very low down. Uh, but we have been using a system which some people call the uh, transanal uh, approach, some people call the transabdominal, transanal approach, tata approach, or we call it the reverse total mesorectal excision where we actually free part of the colon and the lymph nodes of vascular supply through the abdomen through a small puncture wound. But getting the rectum out and getting the what we call the mesorectum where all the lymph nodes are, where we need to clear in order to cure the patients, uh, as a big hassle from the top, to get it from the bottom. Mm. That means we go through the anus uh, and we can see clearly where the tumour is. This is especially useful in very low tumours because you are talking about from the top, you're trying to reach out beyond the tumour and mm. it's blocking your view and so forth. I'm not sure if you can imagine that. Yeah, I can. Um, but you have to go across the tumour, going down the pelvis. Here we just go straight to the bottom end. We can see the low edge of the tumour. We can cut a few centimetres or a, 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 as far down as we, we want to. We then dissect out to a pelvic side wall and we bring the whole misrectum uh, away from the attachments to the, to the surroundings up into the abdominal cavity and then we can bring the tumour out we can be sure of margins, we can be sure it's a good resection. So this is a good advance. And um, we have been doing this. So I think that's uh, good news for patients. Uh, in the first few cases we did, we had excellent results. Um, patients had much less pain than previously for some reason. Uh, although abdomen-wise, we are still doing a robot or the laparoscopy. But certainly from the bottom point of view, we, were, we can be sure. We say, look, margins clear, no doubt about it even before we get histology back. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing that um, we've been uh, interested in uh, is, uh, of course, this is still for the future, but going on from this Tata operation, so-called, is to actually do the operation entirely from the bottom so that there's not even any scars on the abdomen. Um, And we've been uh, discussing and talking to our friends um, in Europe, especially in in the ACART movement, you know, where they, have, they are pioneering a lot of laparoscopic equipment and movement. So that's something that uh, is in the pipeline for the future. Uh, as, far as, as far as other innovations, uh, we also are doing a video-assisted anal fistula repair, you know, which is something that is new, uh, and using a, a scope to look at uh, fistulas and to repair without those big wounds that you see that we had to do in the past where we had to lay open this fistula. Uh, something else that is perhaps very close to you as well, you know, we're talking about the, the Medtronic device, the, the pulse generator. Uh, we have uh, are offering patients, those with, with need to remove the rectum, 
you know, of the anus, um, and having to do a permanent colostomy now, a chance to reconstruct the anus with the use of a stimulated gracilloplasty. And we have done about 20 of our cases. The last case we did um, here at Forty Search Hospital is doing quite well and he's quite happy with his results mm. because he's a young man of just over 40, had to have the anus and rectum taken out for cancer. And we did a reconstruction for him three years after his initial operation when he was disease-free. And uh, so he has, a, he has a new anus now. Fantastic. I can almost hear my patients who have had similar surgeries uh, shouting and saying hooray to hear that. So I think you'll be seeing some more Australian patients here now yes, they know well, about that. We're going to take a break on Navigating the Cancer Mayors. We'll be back shortly with Dr. Francis Siachun. Don't go away. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Scholar Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegoller.com or visit their website at gracegollerinstitute.com. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Back on Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler, and today we are talking with Dr. Francis Xia Chun, once again in Singapore. Um, Francis, I've read that hereditary colorectal cancers, such as Lynch's syndrome, in Asians may not share the same genetic expressions of those of people in the West. I'd like to uh, have you comment on this. Um, and also, is there any progress on targeted treatments based on that knowledge? Well, I don't think that it's so much that the the expressions are not the same. It's just that I think we are looking at different groups of genetic differences. Mm-hmm. So even in the West, you find that there are variations in this in the genetic makeup that causes that that can be found in cancer families. So you know there are two main groups of Lynch syndrome: Lynch type one, where they only get colorectal cancers, and Lynch type two, where they may get other sorts of cancers, like you know multiple endocrine neoplasias, breast cancer, um, endometrial or female genital tract cancers, urinary tract cancers, you know, pancreatic, gastric, and so forth. Now, certain families tend to cluster certain cancers. So that, that's where the difference is. And uh, we know that there's also a great interplay between the various uh, genes that may be found in, you know, our, our genetic makeup that may prevent or cause uh, more cancers or less cancers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the sort of thing that um, you know a lot of people are looking at. And as you know, there are a lot of great interaction at the cellular level um, in the formation or the prevention of cancers. Um, so that 
work is still you know ongoing in all the major uh, cancer centers in the world are looking at this and here uh, I know that we ourselves are looking at uh, quite a few of these things and here with all the patient's permission we are collecting you know data and we're collecting tissue and blood so that we can uh, in future understand better uh, the differences uh, not just between uh, races between countries but also between different families and individuals in the families because they can be quite different Mm-hmm. And what about where we've got the uh, polyposis? Um, is there anything new that's happening in that direction? Um, that question's not on our list of questions, I'm sorry, but it's one that comes up because I have a number of patients in my own practice. Yes. I think you're talking about familial adenomatous polyposis. Now, this is a genetic condition uh, that is passed on in an autosomal dominant fashion. That's what, that, that, that means that you only need one member you know, of, a, of a parent group uh, mm. to, 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 to pass the gene onto the child for the child to get it. Now, um, this, this gene actually uh, can result from mutation. So we have, we have patients that have not got either parent and they are definitely you know, children of those parents or child of those parents mm. but they don't have uh, genes themselves but the child has that gene and this is a mutation that can occur. Now, as far as research into FAP, it's, you know, uh, 30 or 40 years ago, um, St. Mark's Hospital, they started this thing called Leeds Castle Polyposis Group. Now, it's, it, now it has expanded to an even more international group. And uh, people in the, what we call the Polyposis Registry, of which we have one here as well, uh, we are always actively looking at various uh, markers, various treatment options, and various uh, genetic aberrations that can occur and differences that can occur in all these groups. So yeah, there are a lot of um, minor, I would say, minor uh, new discoveries. Um, but the understanding is that this is still a genetic disease and it has to be tackled at that level. Now, for those um, of our audience that may not be familiar with FAP, FAP or familial adenomatous polyposis is actually a disease that affects tissues from all three germinal layers of the fetus. So it doesn't just affect or cause uh, polyps in the colon. Uh, it can cause uh, uh, features in the skin, uh, in the what we call the ectoderm, uh, not just the endoderm, which is the lining of the gut, but it also affects tissues in the mesoderm, which is really things like the thyroid, you know, uh, the bone, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not just the colon we are we are worried about. So perhaps for today, I would say. You know that the some of the cancers that are seen in FAP families, uh, besides colon rectal cancers, are also biliary duct cancers, uh, which is you know an, an endodermal cancer, right. an ectodermal cancer, for example, brain. Uh, we know that astrocytomas, uh, glioblastomas, um, uh, hepatoblastoma, which are, which are cancers of the liver, and so forth. So it's actually a disease oh. that affects mm. a broad range of uh, tissues and organs. Mm, that's really interesting to know. Um, in our last interview, we discussed your experience, your personal experience with Burkitt's lymphoma when you were a child. Um, that very personal experience must help you relate to your patients. Can you share your feelings about what it's like to be a colorectal surgeon and your interaction with patients because of your experience? Yes, no, thank you very much. Now, I, I think that, you know, we are what we are because of what we have experienced and what uh, we have understood those experiences um, in our lives and I think for myself uh, it's still a very vivid experience you know to be in to 
be in pain, to be rushed to the hospital, be operated on, and then to have to undergo real therapy and chemotherapy. So I think uh, very few uh, doctors um, of sort of my vintage would have those experiences. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think um, those things actually do help to to mold us into what we are in our interaction with patients. I tend to think that patients need more assurance when they come. They want to also um, like when when I was a kid, I wanted to you know just to get this over with, you know. Um, and to be able to go back to school or go back to play and so forth. So we understand those sort of experiences a bit better. And I think mm-hmm. in my practice, I tend to want to discuss you know, things more with patients and to ha- be able to help them to understand the situation a bit more. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, by itself it makes me better uh, as a doctor, but certainly it, it, I think it helps to mold me as a person. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and... Uh, as a patient, um, at that time, because I was still very young, and I know that my parents also are not medical inclined people, um, you know, we don't understand everything, and we can't uh, pretend to understand everything. And I, I think patients in the present age, although they have internet, they have access to a lot of information, I, I, I think a lot of them... Um, would prefer the doctor to guide them rather than to be given a whole mass of information and say, look, make a decision, you know. So I also think that from my experience, I find that patients prefer us to guide them and not just to say, look, you've got 20 options, choose one. So that's my approach to medicine from Mm. my experience. Yeah. I think um, doctors that educate are very needed and very important for the patient. That's the feedback we get anyway, which is what this show's about. Um, So medical literature reports the likelihood of colorectal cancer diagnosis increases after the age of 40. But we are seeing, in my practice and from reading around the world, there's many people now diagnosed in their 20s and 30s with bowel cancer and rectal cancer. Um, Is the prevalence increasing here in Asia and are you aware of it increasing in other places? Or do you think this is just a sporadic well, I think um, there, are, there are a couple of reasons, um, as we discussed, the increase of colorectal cancer worldwide. Now, um, years ago, we're talking about 50, 60 years ago, you know, at that time, medicine um, is mu- is, would be much less advanced than it is now. And in those, in those days, if you look at Asia, you look at Singapore, you look at India, you look at China and Africa... I think you'll find that you know a big portion of the population would not live past age of 50 or 60. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you don't have as many patients with colorectal, colorectal cancer as you would get if they would live sure. to 80 or 90. So now that people are living longer, you'll see an increase in colorectal cancer. So if you say, that, look, there's an increasing incidence of colorectal cancer, partly it's because of the people living older, whereas there's a decrease in the incidence of infectious disease and so forth and so forth. Of course, now you see you're getting Ebola and other things coming in. (laughs) So, you know, that may influence, you know, our statistics in a few years. But if you, yes, around the world, you are finding an increase in colorectal cancer in older people. At the same time, your question is, why is it happening in younger people? Yes. Now, I think uh, there are many reasons for this. Uh, And one of the most important reasons is if we look at causation of colorectal cancer, we, we spoke earlier about genetic basis. Now, if more people 
with the genes are living longer and living to the age when they can procreate then you're going to get the genes passed down a bit more mm-hmm. okay that may not be an important reason but that would be some sort of reason mm-hmm. uh, now secondly um, if you look at various things that are used in the modern world now let me just bring you a step back in our laboratory as well as laboratories in many parts of the world uh, we, we do use white rats <laughs> sorry for rats <laughs> but we do use them for medical experimentation uh, and um, both in Australia as here we, we, we use these rats we use a certain uh, some chemicals to cause cancer in the rats mm-hmm. and the two most common chemicals we use are dimethylhydrazine and azoxymethane now we we use portions of this in the in the rat cereal and we, we feed them the rats and both, lo and behold all the rats get coronary cancer within eight months depending on the on the dosage now these two chemicals are actually petrochemicals uh-huh. they are component of fuel you know aircraft fuel car fuel now we know years ago 50 years ago benzene that's what we get you know lots of countries are still using what benzene for for petroleum you know mm. and that's a very you know notable cancer causing agent it's a given right so you know so this increase in the use of hydrocarbons and petrochemicals I think has a lot to do with this increase um, we, we don't have time to go into all of that but a good friend of mine who is a toxicologist in University of Malaysia he tells me that uh, the plastic bottles that we use leaches chemicals petrochemicals out which influences obesity which may have a role in, in cancer formation and causes endocrine effects so you know yeah, and other things are, are, are there on the cards you know our, our, our uh, pollution and so forth mm-hmm. mm. now I know why I'm very fond of using glass bottles for my drinks that I cart around <laughs> thank you we'll be back in a moment on navigating the cancer maze don't go away To a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller, from the Grace Goller Institute, as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Grace Scholar Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracegollarinstitute.com or email institute at gracegollar.com. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. 
We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze with Dr. Francis Xiaochun, and we're talking about colorectal issues and colorectal cancer. Um, I notice the influence of Western culture here, particularly every time I come to Singapore, there's an influence I see from the Asian diet influenced by the Western diet. Raw food, juicing, veganism is in your magazines now, and it does seem to go against your long-hold traditional um, Asian dietary principles. Can you comment on this dietary shift and the implication that that might have in health and colorectal health? Yes, I think, you know, one can approach this very clinically or just from a social point of view or from a cultural point of view. Uh, but certainly from my own perspective as a human being and as a doctor with a slight interest in dietary habits of, 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 of patients as well as uh, normal people, I think we have to have a very holistic approach to this whole problem. Now, a lot of people are blaming foods for their problem, whether it's cancer, obesity, hypertension, and so forth and so forth. But this is what I always say to my patient. I want to just you know, discuss this with you today. Mm. You see, I think that we have to be um, uneducated first and then to be re-educated in order to have good understanding. You know, a great man, Albert Einstein, once said, you know, that education is the greatest obstacle to wisdom, you know, (laughs) or something like that. Yeah. You know, and I think that's true because a lot of us are too educated for our own good, you see, and we think we know everything. And in, in Chinese, we actually have a old proverb that says that diseases come through the mouth, you know, or enters the body through the mouth. Uh, that's true and not true, you see. Now, from my perspective, I think all foods are good. But where we go wrong is the proportion of food that we use and, and the types of food that we eat at different times of our lives. Now, for example, uh, we all know about the food triangle. Now, the food triangle itself is not a um, set in, in, in stone, you know, because it, it's changed so many times over the last many decades. Um, but people do, do now say to me, look, we need this, so many portions of veggies, so many portions of meat, so many portions of this, and so forth, and so forth. But let me just say this. If a man is trying to build muscles, and he goes to the gym, and he carries those 100 pounds weight every day, three times a day, and he doesn't eat his protein, that's not going to be healthy for him. He's going to lose minerals. He's going to be, you know, mm-hmm. get worse than if he didn't do those uh, weights. But if he, you know, wants to be like active, you know, like Pip, for example, and, you know, go into the sea and do his sails and do running and so forth, and he doesn't do his carbs, he's going to lose energy. He's going to be hypoglycemic. He's going to be unhealthy. But if a man just wants to sleep the whole day and no work, no exercise, no play, then he shouldn't be eating. Otherwise, <laughs> he's going to be fat and unhealthy. <laughs> yep. You know, and but if a man wants to lose weight, then he should eat less. But if a guy wants to put on weight, he should eat more. Now, this is healthy. You see, doing anything else is unhealthy. If you want to get, if you want to lose weight, and you keep eating, that's unhealthy. If you want to gain weight and you don't eat, that's also unhealthy. You see, so it's balance. It's balance according to what we need or the body need, not balance according to somebody else's need or some formula somebody has else has. So that's the first point. The second point is a lot of diseases have a genetic basis. Um, for example, I'm sure that all our you know, listeners have got friends that are super skinny. 
but they've got cholesterol that you know reaching up to the third heaven. You mm-hmm. know, they've got diabetes that are uncontrolled, and hardly anything. You know, so don't, don't blame the food. <laughs> now, on the other hand, we all have fat friends that are you know like a mile wide, but they are totally healthy. You know, and it, it's genetic is very important, not just in cancer, but also in in the way our body behaves itself in so far as health and disease is concerned. Now, then we go on to all this. When we understand that, then we can go on to you know talking about influence of Western diet, Eastern diet, and other sorts of diet. So I think uh, if you understand that, you then understand that we we eat according to what we need. Now, and we eat for three reasons. For those of you who've been eating all your life and have not understood why you eat, I'm going to give you some wisdom today. <laughs> Firstly, we eat to get nutrition. Okay, we want to get nutrition. So food that you eat must be absorbed to give you nutrition. Secondly, you eat to get energy for what you want to do that day. And thirdly, you eat to enjoy yourself, which is very important. Now, but we shouldn't eat to pass motion. You know. Passing motion, I must say today, is a side effect of eating, not the purpose of eating, which I think a lot of people don't understand. That's a really important point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you look at, uh, you look, let's, let's look at, all, you know, alternative models. You look at the car, you put, you know, petroleum in the car so that you can enjoy the car, the car has energy to move, you know, and, and, and it's alive, you know, but you don't put petrol in the car to see exhaust. You know, it's like a factory. You don't put raw materials to get sewerage, you know. You put it in to do what you want it to achieve, you see. Now, uh, a lot of people I find nowadays are putting things in to get That's toxic true. waste out. Yes. You know, uh, what it does is just pollutes the earth, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, so let's talk about this. So, you know, I, I've got nothing against foods that people want to eat because they enjoy it. If you like a juice, you go eat it. You know, if you like a steak, go eat it. You know, but here again is where people try to influence others with their belief, you see. Um, what do you enjoy may not be what I enjoy. You know, if I enjoy eating a carrot and not cook it, I mean, I'm a rabbit, so, you know. But if I like to eat a piece of steak because I'm a tiger, you know, that's, my, that, that, that's what I like. Mm. Um, but then as doctors, we want to influence people to understand their disease process, to understand their genetic basis so that they don't go overboard. That's, I think, a balance is always... Um, important but again as I said before the word balance has to be seen in the right perspective because it's thrown around too much and people don't understand what it means so if you ask Hussein Bolt a muscular 100 meter sprinter to eat a balanced diet what does it mean for him compared to a marathon runner who's skinny like a stick to eat a balanced diet they can't both be eating the same balanced diet sure otherwise they both will be either skinny floppy or mediocre (laughs) which is not what either one Hmm. You see, um, yeah. So I think um, a Westerner used to say a Britisher used to a fish and chips may come over here and eat say a Indian diet full of curry and have diarrhea, right? That's because the system is not used to it. You know. On the other hand, um, a, a Chinese chef used to Sichuan hot pot goes goes to France and eats you know something very bland. He may not be used to that either. Uh, so it's about taste. In the, ultimately, whatever you put in food has sustained these races through so many millennium. So I don't think you know uh, there should be anything really very wrong with those foods, uh, except that we should then understand that it's the proportion 
that that you need to eat it to get your body to be healthy. Uh, it's also the taste that you acquire or that you're used to so that you can accept the food has been tasty and you enjoy it. And there's also the nutrition, the, the caloric value of that food so that you don't want to put too much calories that you grow too fat. On the other hand, you don't want to put too much calories that you don't grow, f- you grow too thin, right? You see, so it's all this interplay. I think here in Singapore, we are in a good position because we have all sorts of food. So it's unlikely that somebody will go out and just eat one sort of food for, for the whole year. You know? So I think it's a good thing always to have a blend of cultures, to have a blend of food cooking um, traditions. Um, I am not against raw foods or juicing or vegan diet or, you know, or, or, or meat diet. It's just that everybody should um, adopt what they feel is right for them. But at the same time, they should understand uh, that our body has certain needs. Okay. Now, if you look purely at a physiological point of view, and I'm sure you can find this in any physiology text, you will realize that the body has needs of three essential amino acids and three essential fatty acids that these are only found in animal products so you know a, 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 a person who's a pure vegan if he doesn't take milk he doesn't take eggs you know of course no no meat for him then he's going to be malnourished that's why a lot of vegans need supplements mm. because otherwise they're going to have poor hair poor skin and so forth now but if you are a total meat eater you actually don't need supplements because they have enough vitamins and so forth and those things. Now speaking of vitamins, this again is a I think it's a very Western concept. But I think it's also a commercial concept, not a medical concept. Uh, but people are now so taken that everybody almost pops a vitamin pill every day or even more. Now vitamins and trace elements are called vitamins and trace elements because they are needed by the body in very minute amounts. They are called micronutrients. But some people including some of my friends think they are macronutrients <laughs> take kilograms of it you know not not micrograms of it and in, in essence they we need to understand that all vitamins are poisonous except by vitamin B and C B and C are not poisons because they are actually passed out in the urine the rest accumulate in the in the body and give you side effects all sorts of horrendous side effects um, for those of you who have uh, been through education in Singapore I remember very clearly you know, our biology book telling us that polar bear liver is dangerous for humans. It contains so much vitamin A that people eat it and they bleed to death. You see, and that's just an example. Um, so, this is, I think, um, it's not so much whether new foods coming in are against Asian traditional dietary values or not. It's really life is 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 an experiment in enjoyment. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and also for us to live through it and to understand ourselves and each other you know because I believe that uh, we are not just an animal uh, but we also have some spiritual value so I think we are here to help each other and we are here to understand each other and we are here to be a social animal Mm. and Confucius did uh, say I believe that food was the first happiness Ah, that's good. <laughs> He's a wise man. He's a wise man. Um, one of the things we do find with the patients is that they read a book and they believe that they have to do it because the book says. Yes. And I think what you've brought out here is that if you want to do it, you do it because you feel you need to do it uh, for a personal reason, not because a book says or Dr. Google says. I, I think that's absolutely very uh, true, uh, Grace. And... Uh, 
you know, there are so many books in the world. For every book you find that's pro, there's a book that tells you it's against, you know. And, and a lot of people write from their experience. Uh, the problem is that your experience or my experience may not be the whole truth. You know, I, you know there's a very famous uh, story, anecdote in, 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 in China. talks about this man who one day as he looked on the floor, he found a rabbit. And from then onwards, he never did anything. He never looked up because he's always looking from the floor for dead rabbits. <laughs> you know, I mean that's that's a thing you see. Because just because you had an experience, uh, and a lot of people writing uh, books had an experience, and that experience may be true for him at a time at a particular hour, but it may not be true for him the next day or the next year, and certainly it will not be true for any for almost anybody else. But people write books and advice on dietary habits, on disease. Uh, and so forth, which have no um, actually scientific basis, and worse, um, are able to lead people along the wrong path. Now, one of the things I always say is, you look on the internet and you look at people that are, you know, hundred uh, years old or very old, and you ask them, look, why have you lived so old? What is your secret? And one chap will say, you know. I'm a teetotaler. I never drink. And another chap will say, "I drink every day. That's my secret." Another guy will say, "You know, I don't womanize. I'm a straight man." You know. Another guy will say, "I have many girlfriends." <laughs> you know. And and everybody looks at their own experience. And say that's the reason, but that may not be the reason because you know we, as you know, we are so complex and there's so many other reasons. But we give our favorite reason always. And 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 when you write a book based on your favorite reason, it's bound to be wrong, and it's bound to lead many people astray. So I would say to people. Yes, I mean read those books if you if you like, uh, but don't believe everything in every book. Yes, don't believe everything you read. We'll finish on that note, and we're back in a moment on navigating the cancer maze. Don't go away. Real life solutions. Voice America Health and Wellness. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host Grace Goller from the Grace Goller Institute as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the Cancer Maze. The Grace Scholar Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracegollarinstitute.com or email institute at gracegoller.com. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Now let's recap what we've learned so far on Navigating the Cancer Maze through our guests I'd just like to go back and point out some of the shows where we have talked about colorectal cancer and colorectal issues. 
Of course, we had last week Dr. Lim Jit Fong. On the 3rd of October 2014, he was talking about how surgeons can help you navigate the colorectal treatment maze. Also, Professor Francis Xia Chun uh, was interviewed on the show January the 24th, 2014, and you can find these interviews in the archives on the top right-hand side of the website on Voice America for Navigating the Cancer Maze. Two other interviews that have touched on colorectal cancer from other points of view have been Professor Jerome Galong. I interviewed him June the 20th this year, 2014, and that was actually to promote Immunotherapy Month. We talked about how the immune system fights cancer and in particular his development in colorectal cancer of immunoscore in actually determining what uh, the survival rates can be from colorectal cancer from a very early stage. Then on June the 6th, I interviewed Jill O'Donnell Tormey. Now she is the CEO of Cancer Research Institute and the title of that program was I Am The Answer To Cancer, Cancer Immunotherapy Month. And Jill talked about a number of the new options uh, which touched on also colorectal cancer solutions, in particular checkpoint inhibitors, which we'll talk about later. So they're very useful resources for you who are navigating the treatment maze for colorectal cancer. Now, as we've said today here uh, with Professor Xia Chun, the most common treatment for colorectal cancer is surgery. And in the case of localised tumours, surgery may completely eliminate the cancer. And again, this is about early diagnosis. Um, literally do not sit on the fence uh, because when you've uh, got colorectal cancer and it is called early, the cure rate is actually quite high. But when the cancer's invaded the bowel wall deeply or into the lymph nodes, uh, chemotherapy, sometimes in combination with radiotherapy, is required before or after surgery. So the standard line, first line, chemotherapy, uh, for metastatic colon cancer, and also Avastin, a monoclonal antibody, can be used, and this helps cut off the nutrient supply to the tumour by suppressing the growth of blood vessels. We call this an anti-angiogenesis agent. And this type of antibody actually can improve survival when included with chemotherapy treatment regimes. Both monoclonal antibodies against what we know as uh, epidermal growth factor, EGFR, have also been shown to improve survival when administered with multi-agent chemotherapies. And here's where pathology histology results become very important because these are only effective in patients who lack what is called RAS mutations. And that's a word you've probably heard if you have colorectal cancer you're listening to the program. There's many other options. There are uh, products that bind uh, proteins. Uh, Zeltrap is one of those, binds the growth factors VEGF-A, VEGF-B and PGF and this has also been approved for a second line treatment alongside chemotherapy. Now approximately 50% of colon cancers will be diagnosed with liver metastases and this may occur either at the time of initial diagnosis 
or as a result of disease recurrence. So only a small proportion of patients with liver metastases are candidates for surgery. Um, other techniques and systemic treatments will provide options. We've also talked on the show with Professor Thomas Vogel at the University of Frankfurt Hospital. And Professor Vogel's uh, session was March the 29th, 2013. Uh, you'll notice that session is advertised uh, a lot with looking at lung cancer and mesothelioma. However, Professor Vogel is a world expert in treating liver metastases or primary liver cancers. So it's worthwhile also adding that to your listening regime for Voice America, March the 29th, 2013, with Professor Thomas Vogel. Now, other treatments for liver metastases go through um, alcohol, which is ethanol injected into the liver tumour, where a needle sent into the skin and directly into the tumour, and the alcohol kills the cancer cell. Heat, radio wave, microwave energy, um, where a probe is placed into the liver and energy sent through thin wires called electrodes. Uh, cancer cells are heated and they die. This method is also called radiofrequency ablation if radio uh, energy is used. Freezing is another option, cryotherapy, where a probe is also placed into contact with the tumour. A chemical is sent through the probe that causes ice crystals to form around the probe. The cancer cells are frozen and they die. Um, radioactive beads are helpful in some situations. It's done in much the same way as chemoembolisation. Um, just briefly, uh, we'll run through other immune factors here. Um, T-checkpoint inhibitors. These drugs work by targeting molecules that serve as brakes on the immune response. So by blocking these inhibitory molecules, checkpoint inhibitors are designed to unleash or enhance pre-existing anti-cancer immune responses. This is using your body to actually uh, fight the cancer. Cancer vaccines, they're designed to elicit an immune response against tumour-specific or tumour-associated antigens, encouraging the immune system, again, to attack cancer cells bearing these antigens. And one that's less known about is adoptive cell therapy. Um, in this approach, immune cells are taken from a patient genetically modified or treated with chemicals and to enhance their activity, and then they're reintroduced into the patient with the goal of improving the immune system and anti-cancer response. So if you have colorectal cancer at any stage, as Professor Xia Chun said today, there are many options. You need to know there are many treatment options that have opened up tremendously during the past few years. And I believe as a patient, you need to be clear in your communication with your GP or specialist, oncologist or surgeon, that you are seeking a multidisciplinary multidisciplinary approach to treatment and that you'd like their help to enable you to live as long as possible with good life quality. Ask them about finding a suitable trial for you. Many of the things we've mentioned here um, today can be obtained on a trial. The checkpoint inhibitors, the cancer vaccines, the adoptive cell therapy. Seek a second opinion if you're not provided with the information you need or you don't feel comfortable with the answers that you've been given. You can also contact me directly for information or for a referral. 
If you're still confused and can't find a doctor who'll support you um, and you're based in Australia, you may be interested in our Survivors School. We're having a masterclass where you can learn how to be an exceptional patient. You can learn about all the current treatments that are available for your cancer. And in particular, you can learn about the strategies in how to navigate this very complex cancer maze. So to know about that, you can visit healthintelligenceaustralia.com or you can click on the little advertisement here on the web page um, that you see at the top on Voice America or you can visit the Grey Schooler Institute, that's grayschoolerinstitute.com and for distance patients, um, teaching modules are currently in development and we hope that we'll have those available for people in other countries during the next uh, year. So check in with the websites and that's how you'll find out. Look for Survivor School if you're from Australia and you want to attend that course. Um, go to the menu and look for Survivor School. So we've come to the end of Navigating the Cancer Maze today. I hope you have found this uh, colorectal um, series very, very useful. Again, have any questions, don't hesitate to contact me, Grace Gawler, the host of this show. And we'll see you next week. Have a wonderful weekend and bye for now. And very much a big thank you to Dr. Francis Siachun for his contribution today. Thank you again for listening to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Please join your host, Grace Goller, again next Friday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember, cancer is not something you have to face alone. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.